The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Friends, thank you for joining us for yet another program here on Afternoons with Mike. So glad to have you along. Heard daily here on the Shepherd Radio Network. And that includes, of course, Orlando and Ocala, the villages, and up in Gainesville. So we're happy to have you along with us in the studio with me today from Love and Unity Ministries, a young lady by the name of Maureen Joss, and uh, she works with the Bible. Now think about that. (laughs) Not a lot of people really focus in this culture as she is doing, and I'm so honored to have her here. She teaches Bible literacy, and that's kind of the main thrust of the ministry. So welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Maureen, what part of the country did you grow up in? I actually grew up in New England in Connecticut. How did you get to Florida? Ah, (laughs) I came to Florida in a a somewhat unconventional way. Um, I was suffering from active alcoholism, and it was my second attempt at rehab. And actually, ironically enough, when they gave me the brochure in the emergency room and they asked me if I would go anywhere... I looked through the brochure and I pointed at Orlando and I said, I'm not going to Orlando. (laughs) Oh, you said you're not going to go there. (laughs) Correct. Now, most people would like to come to Orlando. Yeah, I don't know. It was just something about it. I just, I looked right at it and I just pointed and I said, not there. And then within 48 hours, I was on a plane on my way to Orlando. My goodness. Now, you in your bio state that you are a relatively uh, young believer, a new, a new, uh, how many years has it been now? I would say around five. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now that's still in, in, in the course of life, a, a very short period ago. And yet something changed in your life so radically, so dramatically that not only did you become a believer and start attending a church, but you felt launched and called into this ministry. So what happened? Can you tell us the story? Sure. So um, as I mentioned, I was an active alcoholic for 32 years of my life. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was wild. Um, and no church background growing up then. I wouldn't say no church background growing up. I would say that my parents always encouraged us to go and they gave us the option to choose. Okay. And so the minute that I had the choice between a sleepover with a girlfriend or going to church on Sunday, I chose the sleepover for the social fellowship, uh, part of that kind of because in the church in new england um it's been my experience that it's just not unless you've started there and you you know came out of the womb and then you ended in sunday school with this group of individuals that you were always the outsider coming in Mm -hmm. i always felt like the outsider coming in so we've always heard that new england area is the area of the frozen chosen so i'm not (laughs) i don't know if that's true or not but it's a clever little statement but you you did not have a a relationship with jesus growing up then i did not my great grandfather actually dug the foundation of the church that i ended up in as an adult the literal family Mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah he was very active very uh well-respected member of the church And, um, after college, I decided to go back to church. I did feel called back Mm -hmm. to church after college. And then I was married in that church. And shortly thereafter, I stopped attending. And then shortly thereafter, I got a divorce. Okay. Now, all of this time, you said over 30 years of your life, Mm -hmm. you've had this, uh, tendency to be, uh, an alcoholic then. So drinking, was that started off just partying and that kind of thing? I think I had a normal I mean, I had an amazing childhood. I had an amazing life, um, but I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. Right. And now that I'm aware of that, I can seek treatment for sure. my disease. And during that time, I wasn't, I wasn't privy to the information that alcoholism was a disease. I thought alcoholics lived under bridges. I thought alcoholics didn't have jobs. I thought a lot of things about alcoholics, mm-hmm. but I certainly never thought I was one. So what was the revelation that you were? <laughs> Um, a five-month relapse that brought me to my knees and brought me to death's door on mm. more than one occasion. Mm-hmm. And complete and utter just um, 
not recognizing myself in the mirror, not wanting Mm -hmm. to look in the mirror, not wanting to know me anymore. Were you ever part of like 12-step programs or something like that? I'm a very active member of a very popular Mm -hmm. 12-step program, yeah. Okay, very good. Mm -hmm. And I know some of those are offered in churches. Were you ever part of one of those? Um, Not the one that's offered by the church, Um, but I did attend uh, meetings the first time that I got sober in Connecticut. I was sent, I was given the option to live on the street or go to rehab. I had been arrested and charged with a felony and Mm. I was removed from my home and I was at home with my parents and it came to a head and my mother had my bags packed and said, you have two choices. My sister had done the research and found a rehab in Connecticut that my insurance accepted. So I attended and in 36 days I was healed according to this rehab. And they told me to go to a 12-step program, and I'm sure that they did the best that they could, um, but for me, I needed to know that I knew. And I got that opportunity shortly after leaving rehab and not being able to put anything between me and the alcohol. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a defense. Mm -hmm. And so I relapsed for five months. I did things that um, most women would never dream of doing. And... Through that process, I, I just was just brought to my knees right? and, um, I couldn't leave my apartment at the end. I couldn't, um, the only time that I could leave my apartment was to go to the liquor store often at 7am. And I can remember driving down the road, what was usually a time for people to be driving to work. And I would be driving to the liquor store and I would see people turn into the coffee shop. And I wanted so badly to be turning into the coffee shop. But But I wasn't. I was turning into the liquor store. Sure. Mm -hmm. So often people like this, they just never get out of that circle, that Mm -hmm. cycle, if you will. It is a a kind of a repeating circle in their life. And I'm grateful that you did. What what were some of the steps that kind of brought you out of that? Well, I think that, you know, um, I think a rock bottom. You know what I mean? There's there's, There's this incredibly fantastic fall to the bottom. And, uh, I didn't even know that I was falling. Um, as you mentioned, was it partying that kind of got me into this scene or, you know, what was Mm -hmm. it? It was, it was, I never had enough. I never had enough. And I didn't have enough of anything. I didn't have enough attention from anybody. I didn't have enough money. I didn't have enough self-esteem. I certainly couldn't have enough alcohol. And so I spent, it, it transitioned from, going out because I deserve this because I worked hard all week. Like I was a very successful fundraiser in Connecticut. I walked into the Lord gave me an amazing opportunity in undergraduate. I walked into a boardroom and they, they carved out a position for me where I did strategic planning for a hospital. I was with vice presidents and CEOs on the regular. Mm -hmm. And, um, so unfortunately I developed this ego and I developed this misconception that I had made it, that I had arrived, that I'd done all of the things and then getting married shortly after that and getting the husband and all of that. Um, you know, you get all of these things that are so important in society. And especially I think in new England, where, as you mentioned, the frozen chosen, <laughs> yeah, right. um, I go to church, but I'm certainly not trying to be offensive to all you New Englanders out there. <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, you know. <laughs> but um, so on the outside, everything looked great, and then on the outside, it started to not look so great. And people tried to warn me. My ex-husband had an intervention for me, but until I knew, until I was able to make a change, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's um it's a very personal decision. It's it's quite like coming to Christ. You don't know you need him until you know you need him. And until, unfortunately, he's the only option that you have, I think, in most cases, mm-hmm. um, for people like me anyway. And um, so once all of my friends started buying houses and having babies and moving on with their life, and I wasn't, it started to be more apparent, but I still didn't think that I had this disease. I still thought that I could control it. I still thought that I was in, that I was in control. Yeah, right. And so having gone, having gotten arrested, which should have been an awakening, it wasn't, um, it was just another obstacle mm-hmm. to get around, to get to my next drink, to get to my next, uh, checkout point. Because that's really what it was, is that I was living a life that I constantly wanted to check out of. And the more I checked out of it, the worse it got. 
Mm-hmm. But I couldn't see that because I wasn't sober. Right. And when you're drunk all the time, it's hard to see some pretty obvious things. And so after the first rehab and then in the relapse is really when it just, it just was, it was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. So where and who was it that brought the, uh, the gospel in such a mo- way, in such a moment that you heard it and it, and it made sense that, you know, what you said about Jesus, you found him as desperate people do to be the only one. But the truth is he's the only one for anyone, mm-hmm. whether they have this problem or not. Right. I'm blessed to be an alcoholic. I am absolutely blessed to be an alcoholic. A lot of people want to give me credit for coming to Christ and for doing this ministry and for, for all of these things that, I, that I'm walking into. But I don't have a choice because mm-hmm. I've been given the option of a spiritual path or death because of my alcoholism. So it's really, it's just, it's a blessing when understood with Christ, mm-hmm. with the Trinity attached to it, we're absolutely unstoppable. However, right. the Trinity, a very important part of that. So right. I would say that it was on the airplane on the way down to Orlando that, because I always knew that God was there. I always knew he was there. I just didn't really understand who he was or what he meant and what, what he could do in my life. Mm-hmm. And so on the airplane, I had my book from that 12-step program because I knew enough to bring that with me. And I just said a very simple prayer, um, what is commonly referred to as the gift of desperation in certain circles. And I said, um, I'll do whatever it takes. Keep me sober and keep me alive. So at that moment, you were sober. It's still on the whole trip About down. a week sober, yeah, mm-hmm. about a week. Because I was in the hospital for a week, detoxing, mm-hmm. hallucinating, the whole nine. Did you have someone accompanying you on the trip? Nope, just God. So that's, <laughs> that's really amazing. Yes, he was, because, I mean, you're by yourself. Uh, some people would say, hey, I'm not accountable to anybody with me, and they could just go off and do their own thing again, So, mm-hmm. but you didn't. I'm pretty stubborn alcoholic. <laughs> that <laughs> clock for sobriety started ticking and I knew that I wanted to keep it ticking. That's good. Um, so I just, and I was honestly afraid of what if I get down to Florida and they don't take me because I'm drunk, you right. know, like I'll be in the middle of nowhere, Florida with nobody to help me. So it was a little bit of stubbornness and a little bit of sheer terror, I think. Mm-hmm. But you got here and then you mm-hmm. got into the program here. I did. Mm-hmm. And how long did that last? Well, I'm still a very active member. It's not something that I mm-hmm. ever plan to leave. Um, God knows what my plans are better than I do. Um, but it's um, so I, I went to inpatient treatment for about 70 days. And then I transitioned into what I would call sober living, which is like a halfway house, I think is mm-hmm. what you guys refer to it down here. And so I had a very structured first year of sobriety where there were certain rules that I had to follow. There were certain tasks that I had to complete. There was a lot of therapy. And within that structure was a, a demand that I go through a 12-step program. And thank God for that. So mm-hmm. it was, again, it was, ne- it was necessity keeping me off the streets. And it was also sheer, sheer terror because I had tried... You know, I'd been in therapy since I was in my early 20s because I always felt there was something different. There was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And soothing that with alcohol was the answer. And then that led me down the path that it led me. So um, having tried going to church before I was married, having tried therapy, having tried working really hard and getting all the things, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing could could quiet the the unease the disease, really. Nothing could quiet it. And once I started to focus on the spiritual principles of the program, it was absolutely miraculous. You know, um, my spiritual friend, my mentor would always tell me, focus on the program and let God sort out mm-hmm. everything else mm-hmm. and everything will be taken care of. And that's just been my experience. I don't, I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someday when I get there, I'll ask him, but I'll tell you, it's oh, pretty, it's pretty incredible. That's great. And how long from the point you got here in Orlando, the place you never wanted to go, (laughs) the place you didn't want to be, how long was it until you you started this, I guess, the next phase where you're doing better and you're you're making it and you have this idea of doing this this ministry? Well, um, when I got here, they said to change everything. That was six years ago, six Mm -hmm. and a half years ago. 
When I got here, they said change everything. So I followed directions and I changed everything. So I became a hairstylist. I went to school and a friend of mine had actually came, come down to Florida about six months before me. And I knew her from the business world. I knew her from networking. And as soon as she saw on social media that I was moving to Florida, she called me and said, you have to come to this church. And that's where I went to Discovery for the first time. Okay. So God really, like, he knows the kind of person that I am, that I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I really need, I need, I need confirmation that I'm on the right path. So he set me up at Discovery Church with Don Cousins, who is a Bible teacher. And, uh, and a pastor, believe, and a senior pastor. Yeah. <laughs> senior You're pastor, right. of course. And um, I believe he was going through the book of Matthew. Mm-hmm. So I was learning the Sermon on the Mount. I was going through the 12-step program. And I was also doing another study, another spiritual study at the same time. So I had three pretty credible sources telling me exactly how to live my life. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And I followed it the best that I could. Of course, of course, making a million mistakes along the way. Um, early sobriety is kind of like putting all of your emotions on a blender without the top on and pressing the button. <laughs> oh, that's quite a picture. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So all of it's the emotions flying around all flying the time. everywhere. And, and you're just trying to keep it together. You're just trying not to drink. And right. so all of your other character flaws kind of come bubbling to the surface. So it's a real battle between you and you. And the only one that can help you is God in that process. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one who wove your heart together. So he knows exactly what your heart needs to be eased and to be soothed mm-hmm. so that the rest of you can function like a normal human being. So um, all was well for the first three years of sobriety with some bumps along the way. I'm, I'm no angel. And um, I had gotten engaged about two years sober and I felt myself going down the same path that I had gone down years before with my first marriage. He was great on paper. He made all the sense in the world, but there was something telling me not to do it. Mm -hmm. And I can remember walking down the aisle thinking the exact same thing with my ex-husband, but it was, so you did get married. I did get married before I got sober and those feelings of this isn't the right way to go. This isn't the path that I have for you. I was feeling again with my fiance, my Mm ex-fiance in sobriety. So I called off the wedding. Okay. And I did everything I could to learn about how God wanted me to have a relationship, a romantic relationship. Mm. And I get a little choked up because I can remember the exact moment where he met me again, mm. just like the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. And, and he met me and he, he just, the scriptures just acknowledged everything that I was feeling in that conversation about being an outcast, mm-hmm. about being set apart from people that were like me because from other women because they didn't approve of my behaviors. They didn't accept me for who I was mm-hmm. and how I had to make my own way. And so at that time, I, I knew that I had to do things differently. So I sought out teachers like Andy Stanley, Michael Todd, Darius Daniels, all with these amazing ministries that would talk to people about how to have romantic relationships, Mm -hmm. how to have biblical romantic relationships. And so I dove deep and I, (laughs) I swore off men for a year. I said, God, you can have me for one year. And it was going really well until September of 2019. And my mother was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Mm. Let's hold that story. And, We'll uh, pick that story up in a moment. We're up against a break. My guest today is Maureen Joss, and she's with Love and Unity Ministries and uh, attends the Discovery Church in Orlando. Uh, A lot of friends there, a lot of great uh, friends there. We'll be back in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike, and you're on The Shepherd. Palm Beach Atlantic University, Orlando, offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years' experience, EC Waters is a top train comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. 
No wonder EC Water's air conditioning and heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. With me in the studio today, Maureen Joss, and she's with Love and Unity Ministries, something that uh, God gave her and a uh, ministry that is all about Bible literacy. And this amazing uh, story that Maureen has been telling us has uh, had its peaks and valleys along the way, including a trip that uh, at the point of desperation and getting over uh, or, or getting to a place where she could mitigate her life again because of this uh, con- so serious condition with alcoholism found herself in Orlando, a destination she really didn't want to come, but she's here and through the invitation. And how important was that invitation from a friend uh, to reach out to you in that point? Maybe not even a super close friend at that point, but invited you to church. I mean, that's really a wonderful thing that she did. Invited Maureen to um, a discovery and uh, things started changing after that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, while attending Discovery Church, while uh, seeking treatment, spiritual treatment for my disease of alcoholism through a 12 step program, I um, arrived at another point of desperation about three years into sobriety when my mother was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Mm-hmm. Very unexpected. And I was I found myself on a plane on the way back to Connecticut, not knowing what I was going to face but being fully armed with the armor of God Mm. and much more information about how loved each and every one of us are and how nothing in God's world happens on accident. Mm -hmm. And that it is, um, Don Cousins taught us that it is incredibly important, uh, critical as to how we respond to God. And this was the opportunity to do that and to do it with grace and to do it with compassion and his strength. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when I came back to Connecticut to help my family bury my mother, um, unfortunately, my mother's mother, my grandmother, was also stage four cancer. She died a week before my mother. Oh, my goodness. I flew in on a Thursday, I believe, and by Monday, she was gone. And by the following Monday, my mother was gone. Mm. So it was pretty intense. Was your mother in such a condition that you were able to talk with her? Interesting that you ask me that. The last thing that I got to say to my mother while she was on life support was if she knew Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Right. You And she couldn't speak because she had the breathing tube, mm-hmm. but she used her eyes and she uh, motioned the best that she could. Yes. Okay. And I asked her if she wanted me to keep praying and she made the same response. Okay. Yeah. So that was the last uh, thing that I got to say yeah. to my mother. It was yeah. pretty, pretty profound. Right. So this is that's a big blow too in a week. Mm-hmm. Your grandmother and your mother, mm-hmm. and your grandmother was facing the same. Was it like the same kind of cancer or what? No, but my entire family, with the exception of two individuals, dies of cancer. So mm-hmm. it's not a surprise that mm-hmm. that's the way that they both went. But nobody could have predicted that it would have been one right after the other. Were you able to make it through that whole trip back up to your home? and uh, make it through that without the, without the, the, the problems that you had faced up there before? I had absolutely, I've, I've been relieved of the desire, the compulsion to drink. It's yeah. not something that comes to mind um, when I face troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I, I'm an alcoholic, and it's been my personal experience that from time to time the thought does creep back into my mind. Satan is alive mm-hmm. and well. Oh, yeah. And he knows yeah. He, he does that with everybody. Uh, where my, where <laughs> my right. weak areas are, mm-hmm. but where I'm weak, he's strong. But you made it through. I did. That's wonderful. I did. And oh, that's so tough. I lost my own mom last year. And, I, you know, about like you, she was on a breathing tube when I got there. And we had just a very little conversation. These are tough times. I mean, people are going through it. Uh, you went through it much earlier and much younger than I. But I'm thankful that we get to have our parents as long as we get to have them and Mm -hmm. uh, how wonderful that you could have that chat and know her eternal destination that's wonderful yeah yeah a gift yep so you made it back here after that well 
while I was in Connecticut, it's funny that you brought up the Frozen Chosen. I met with my pastor, Pastor Diane from Bethany Covenant Church, because I needed answers. Why were all of the people who had gone to church so faithfully, all of these perfect Catholics, why could none of them explain or understand what was going like? Why could none of them handle what was happening with my mother? Why were they falling apart and I was standing strong? Mm -hmm. I didn't understand. You know, the week one, the one that um, had been sent to rehab twice, the one that had been completely removed from everything she knew, the, you know, the woman at the well, completely separate. And everybody else was melting and I was okay. And I asked her, I said, what is going on? And she, she explained the frozen chosen to me. <laughs> and she said, go back to Florida and, and get with God and deepen that relationship. And so I, I did. I came back and did exactly what she said. I came back to Florida and I was working with a mentor at church. And she had asked me if I didn't, she had me do this exercise, a five-year plan exercise. And the last part of the plan was if you didn't have to worry about income whatsoever, if you could do anything at all, what would it be? And I said, well, I'd learn as much about God as possible. And then I ended up in seminary <laughs> about six months after that. So right. I was duped into seminary. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> duped into seminary. I'm not, I didn't know I'd There's become, a new one for me. <laughs> I had no idea I'd be a Bible teacher. I'd, none of this. Oh, this is all news right. to me. <laughs> so. You know, this is so exciting. You know, I, I'm just so uh, amazed at the grace of God. That's what my answer would be for you. Why you were able to go up there and do that is because God gave you grace to stand strong when other people, if they don't have that same level of grace, they, they don't process it uh, the same way, maybe not even the right way. Uh, but you had the gift of grace and God helped you. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is the, that's the best answer we can come up with. Right. I think it's the right answer. Absolutely. You know, the grace of God gives us the ability to make it through. Mm-hmm. And that's what's added to your life. That's the big thing that is in your life now that wasn't ever in your life before, that you have the power of God who is your advocate, and he's helping you day by day. So you get this great question, what would you do? And you would study the Bible. And so somewhere in there, this idea for this ministry comes alive. Well, my first semester, I was blessed to take a class called Inductive Bible Study. And it, what inductive Bible study does is it, as one of my professors says, it turns down the volume on everything that you've been taught so that you can really focus on what the text says, what the mm-hmm. actual scriptures say. And it's a, it's, it's a method to study the Bible. It's not the only method to study the Bible, of course, but it's the first one that I learned. So I think it's the best That's good. <laughs> until I'm taught another one. I'll stick with this one. But Um, so it would just was, it was incredible because I was sitting in class feeling completely underqualified, completely unqualified, forget about underqualified. I was not qualified to be there except God and he's amazing. And I was sitting in class and and we'd have to do these class introductions where you stand up and you talk about yourself for 30 seconds and then you sit back down. Uh, Everybody else is talking about how they've been in ministry since they were two and how their (laughs) father was a ministry and they're great, great, great. And all these, and I'm sitting there going, okay, well, I was just a raging alcoholic who wanted to learn as much about God as possible. So that's pretty much my story. And then the most wonderful thing happened is that I could understand. I could understand inductive Bible study. I could understand scripture. I could be in an Old Testament class and the professor give us a reading to work through as a group. And I could see, I could see what the point of the story was Mm -hmm. while others were struggling. And it didn't make sense to me. And to be quite honest with you, I was very confused as to how people who had been in positions of leadership in churches were in those positions, not understanding these methods and not understanding scripture. And that's my, that's my defect. That's Mm -hmm. my bad judgment. That's my, um, you know, that's something that I need to deal with, with the Lord. And I've been working on that a lot um, and having understanding that his ways aren't my ways and that those people were very effective and that they helped a lot of people in their position for a very long time. But nonetheless, I was confused. And Mm -hmm. so I, um, because I'd been in this recovery um, arena for three or four years at this point, I, I felt a call to, to gather women at first, only women who were in recovery, who also had a relationship with Jesus because not everybody in recovery 
is open to Jesus. And what they don't understand, I think, again, in my experience, is that the issue they have are with the people who claim to follow him, not with him. And so opening a space where women could feel safe to explore Jesus Mm -hmm. and explore the Trinity while talking about issues in recovery that we talk about very openly that you can't necessarily, and it's not necessarily appropriate to talk about in a small group at church. I mean, things that I would say would blow these women's hair back (laughs) when I talk about my experience and talking about the life that I came from and where God met me. And so um, I wanted to create this space. So I created a group called Recovered and Redeemed. And we started with a uh, a facilitated uh, from Right Now Media study Mm -hmm. um, that I just simply led. And then I was asked by the members of the group, because I had been talking so much about this inductive Bible study class, they asked me to walk them through some scriptures. And um, I fell in love. Uh, The critical mistake that I made was that I didn't realize that these women had started to put me in a different category. And while I shared openly as if I would in a in a 12 step meeting Mm -hmm. about my own flaws and my own decisions, my personal life, I was starting to shepherd these women and they didn't want their shepherd acting in a certain way. So I was. Um, I was asked to leave the Bible study Hmm. and that was painful. That was extremely painful. And so I took about a year off and then the call kept coming. I kept being asked by more and more people, you know, teach us what you know. This is so amazing. Like come back and teach us what you know. And I kept saying no. And then a woman just very tearfully, frankly, she begged me to teach her more about what I knew. And I, I finally said, okay, I'll, I'll start again. And so I did. Okay. And that's where you are now with this? That's where I am now. I started, um, which is odd, I think, for some people to understand, but I started at the beginning of the book. I started in the book of Genesis. If God thought that it was good enough to start with, I Mm -hmm. I think it's good enough to start with. And so I started leading a Genesis study, and we used the method of inductive Bible study. And I also teach um, context is incredibly important, understanding that there are different books in the Bible with Mm -hmm. very different um, literature categories with very different authors, very different intentions and those kinds of different audiences. So it's so important to know what you're looking at before you decide to apply it to your life. Historical grammatical method, right? Mm-hmm. Historical and ling- linguist yes. language, uh-huh. um, just so many different parts of it. I mean, you would go up to no other ancient literature and apply it to your life as is. You just wouldn't do it. It just doesn't make sense. Right. But for some odd reason, People do more that with the Bible. Peop- yeah. yeah, more and yeah. more people do it with the Bible. And, and that's why you're calling it Bible literacy, because it is important to understand all of the aspects of the Bible. And the Bible itself tells us to rightly divide the word. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate while at Discovery Church to be exposed to Brad Gray and his incredible, uh, his incredible style of teaching. I mean, sitting in a sermon that Brad Gray delivers is like sitting in a seminary class. Mm-hmm. The depth of the context that he offers. There's so much more richness when you understand the entire story. If we had started this interview with me just talking about Bible literacy, people wouldn't understand. They wouldn't understand why, why you're interviewing me. It's just one more Bible teacher. Why are you interviewing mm-hmm. her? Well, you're interviewing me because I'm the woman at the well, because there was no shot of me doing this on my own. And I was very, very clearly called to this position, not one that I asked for. Mm-hmm. I specifically asked not to be brought here. And yet here I am. And here you are. Here I am. <laughs> and you're doing it. And I'm doing now it. you mentioned Asbury and that you're, uh, I think you said third year. Is Correct. that right? Yep. So you're still in seminary mm-hmm. and are you doing it remotely? Are you, do you go up to Asbury? Well, I do. Uh, Once a semester, I try to take a class at one of their different locations and Mm -hmm. I use it as a mini sabbatical for myself. Um, Kind of kind of like a tribute to my mother. She really liked to travel. So Mm -hmm. when I when I when I go on these trips, I typically drive. So I've driven to Tulsa. I've driven to Kentucky a couple of times. Been to Wilmore then. I've been to Wilmore. Mm-hmm. Wilmore is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Lots sure of cows, is. lots of pastures. <laughs> what, uh, what, what is uh, your thought on all of this recent stuff that's gone on there with the uh, what's called the Asbury Revival? Um, to be quite honest with you, in the middle of the semester and in the middle of building a ministry, I haven't paid very much attention to it. 
There's a <laughs> lot of people still of buzzing about all of that. Yeah. yeah so there's these kids up there hungry and thirsty for God. It's really exciting. You know, I don't, I don't care much how people come to God as long as they come to him. Right. So if, if kids are in a chapel and they're celebrating God and it makes the news and it, it makes the news in ways that, that the church usually doesn't make the news, hasn't recently made the news. Yeah. If it's for a good reason, if it's, if it's to bring people to, if it's to get people to Google the website mm-hmm. and read some things and get curious, then I'm absolutely a thousand percent for it. Where are you, your ministry opportunities lying right now? Well, how do you minister to people? How does this uh, love and unity work? Right now we offer one study a week. Of course, you know, I just incorporated the ministry back in October. Mm -hmm. So we're just getting started. But I do offer a a study on the book of Genesis once a week in Longwood. I rent some space there. It's a conference room. And I, I I walk the participants through one chapter, sometimes two chapters, because when you learn the process of inductive Bible study, as I'm sure you're aware and a lot of the listeners are aware, before... The, the chapters and verses are recent history mm-hmm. as far as the Bible's concerned. So the way that the Bible is spliced, the way that the books are sliced up aren't necessarily the way that the original author or the original editor of that particular book would have done so. Um, when I meet the people who did it, I'll ask them why they did it that way. But <laughs> <laughs> when you use the process of inductive Bible study, sometimes you do a chapter, chapter and a half. You look for literary clues to show you where the story is taking a turn. And then as you go through each segment, as you identify them, you say, okay, what is the author trying to show me here? Mm -hmm. So if people would like to join you on one of these, they can go to your website. Correct. They can go to loveandunityministries.org. Love and unity. Is that and with an A-N-D? Yes. Spell it out then. Spell it all out. Loveandunityministries.org. Where in Longwood? It is in the historic area of Longwood. There's a clock tower and then yes. there's a beautiful navy blue old building right inside there on the first floor. Uh, there's a conference center. Yes, I know where that conference center is. I've been there. Oh. Yeah, it's nice. In fact, they have other other uh, at that venue, they have other events there as well, mm-hmm. receptions and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's what we were there for. Nice. So that's a beautiful area. Uh, my guest today has been Maureen Jaws for these two segments. Uh, we just wish you the best. Give us that website one more time. Loveandunityministries.org. Loveandunityministries.org. We wish you the best. Thank we you. really do. And uh, thank you for coming in. Thanks for asking me. All right. This is great. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095. Back again for segment three on the line with me, a first-time guest. So excited about this. I've read his bio, and what an honor to welcome Paul Boardman, who is chairman of Decouple China, the pack for that. He's an advocate of Made in USA by USA. Boy, that's something that you don't hear as much as you did when I was a young man. Paul, so nice to have you on the program. Mike, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to uh, your audience. It's It's really wonderful to be here. Well, I know that your background, you've been involved in politics. You have been uh, actually uh, involved as a candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives from, uh, I guess that was in California area. And you have also served in D.C. You've been a fundraiser for a guy. And, and there's one, and this will make sense when I say his name because he's from Indiana. Uh, Senator Richard Luger, you've worked for him and you've you've just been involved in a lot of exciting things for years uh, I, you know all that kind of experience in america would would not be surprising to think that the person like yourself is pro american but isn't it funny how many people who would have a similar resume that you would have they seem to be uh, kind of marching to a different drum right now wouldn't that be what you think 
It is. It is what I think. It, I, I was very blessed. My family, our our business uh, was successful growing up, and allowed me to answer the call when President Reagan. I just wanted to go to Washington, and and President Reagan just completely, you know, instilled that in me, and I went and I started working for Senator Luger, who happened to be a great man. Uh, to be that fortunate to work for somebody uh, who's a statesman like Senator Luger, and th- those things imp- they impressed me, and I've just tried to live to that standard as much as I possibly can. So after my children, are, our children are a certain age, and we were very focused on that about four years ago, um, I just really felt compelled to look into this Chinese Communist Party problem. So I've been at this for four years, and it's led me to this point. Uh, and I've continually made the commitment to move forward and do what I can uh, to raise the awareness and actually work legislatively on the state level and federal level to uh, push back against the Chinese Communist Party. It's so weird. I, I We were talking before we began this segment. Uh, it's so weird to think and realize that our grandparents, my grandparents, and this generation that would have even been leading up to them, uh, anyone who had gone through World War One forward would have this uh, awareness that the communist efforts in our country were a bad thing. And yet somehow we are living in a day where our own government at the very highest levels of our government are seemingly more concerned about their welfare than they might be our own citizens of the United States. I don't think that's an unfair statement. I think a lot of people right now are wanting the president to qualify and clarify where he stands in this relationship that he has with Hunter's involvement with China, his own uh, leanings into China. And yet we have a, a news media, Paul, that is just simply complacent uh, with these, uh, maybe even uh, a part of the efforts for covering some of these things up. So, man, all that to say is I'm grateful for you for what you're doing to try to draw awareness to this danger that is lurking all around us. Well, it's really about technology and the growth of technology. It's very easy for one person who's a communist in China to have an impact on a whole state, a county, maybe even the country. And clearly they've um, co-opted members of uh, the United States Senate, um, House, uh, could be even judges around the country. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer that um, you know, the uh, CCP actually literally put uh, Biden in office. I think it was way beyond any type of payment. Um, I think that was a, a plan for them to do everything they could possibly do to try, to try to put him in office. The fortunate thing is that with all this going on, uh, there's a lot of pressure on the White House to take action. Now, how much action they'll take against the Chinese Communist Party is, is a question. Will they will they succumb to the pressure from China or to the pressure from even the Democratic senators mm-hmm. from all over the country? Clearly, the American people do not want uh, they want a strong, strong leadership against communism and the Chinese Communist Party. But it, 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 the White House is you know, doing things, but they're, they're coming to that, those conclusions and those policies, just dragging their feet, kicking and screaming. You know, when you look back at American business, I mean, I'm not even sure uh, how that idea came about. I don't know what the impetus. I know, obviously, money played a big role in why a lot of businesses took their jobs out of America and sent them to China. And now we're all paying the price for that kind of involvement. And it's not such a great deal after all. But this is something that's still going on. You can hardly buy anything anymore without seeing the words made in China displayed on it. And you're uh, you've got to be getting some pushback, I'm sure, from a lot of businesses, right? Well, now they're starting to see that there could be economic benefits. You know, many companies pulled out of Russia, and they received a capital bounce from doing that. So they had an investment in Russia. Uh, they left, and the market uh, helped the cap- You know, re- re- they recouped that um, through the capital markets. It, getting out of China right now, could be could become very popular. Um, I hope it does. Definitely, it's moving mm-hmm. in that direction. There are, um, and I, I believe that when she meets um, uh, Putin, he'll very likely announce a, an open you know partnership 
that will start that process of more people leaving China. And he, he's out in the open with his confrontation now. And uh, eventually that has to happen. Eventually, if you want to take over the world and, and, and bring a new world order, you, you, you come out in public and you, you, you do what he's doing. Right. So that, that's really where we are. But Made in America is everything, um, and it certainly can do it. Uh, in 2020, let's see, it was t- April of 2020, I was advocating to um, just, you know, cut the trade with China and increase the incentives for our investors to make and build in America. Uh, I believe in the engineer of the American people to build a better life. I know we can do it. We have a lot of these MacGyver types out there who are engineers who are uh, completely underutilized, and they can integrate new capabilities and hit price points. But the reality is the, the prices that, um, that China was able to offer us for manufacturing, we're all, we're, they're just fake, and they were just you know Chinese Communist Party funded. I mean, they, they, they'll pay for the factories. They'll pay for the tooling. Uh, they have the labor, cheap labor. Then they have the slave labor. So that we we've been doing that a long time. So those prices are not um, really reflective of of reality. Um, but I do think with good integration with our engineering uh, people, uh, we we can manufacture and we can find other countries that are are friendly and uh, we can have good trade with them. Well, it couldn't happen soon enough for me. <laughs> I would love to right, see this. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you think about all the crazy things that's gone on with the supply chains and. And you find out, you start to wonder, honestly, you start to wonder. It's easy to sound like a conspiracy theorist, you know, when you start to wonder what could uh, be going wrong. And we're not even aware of it with this kind of relationship that we have with China. But uh, then there's this whole thing about the threats that are coming out. Even this past weekend, uh, like alerts, being America being put, our military being put on high alert. What are your thoughts about that? Well, Chinese, uh, you know, cancer is metastasized. I would say, again, April of 2020, there was a point there where if we had flipped our economy, we, I don't think they could have gained uh, the ground and the power that they have. But we didn't do that. Right. So, so I, not to use a, a movie analogy, but I, I think it, it does point out um, what I'm trying to express is the Truman Show reminds me a lot of how China operates. And we're in the Truman Show. So uh, the balloon was the lighting canister falling and us waking up. Uh, That was a mistake. There are thousands of things that the CCP is doing around the world. They want what, what they have in China for the whole world. They want to surveil everybody, control them, tell them how to behave, you know, no freedom. No, they're the most important thing I learned over the last four years is that the CCP, the 30 families that run the CCP are amoral, they're immoral, they're fascist, they're Stalin, they're Hitler, they're Mao. That's who mm-hmm. those people mm-hmm. are, not necessarily the Chinese people. But I mean, they'll traffic in anything. And they have no concern whatsoever for life. It's not, completely irrelevant to them. That's who those people are. And they will weaponize anything. It doesn't matter. You can't even imagine the things they could possibly think of. And they have monitors that monitor our country and our people just like they do in their country. They don't have all the surveillance equipment they want, so they can't you know, really do that yet. And they're not going to get there. But you know, they have their cybersecurity people, 20,000 of them, 20,000 monitors uh, that you know, by county, by country, or by county, by company, by you name it, by TikTok? TikTok, by, it doesn't matter, yeah. fentanyl, they're putting people, coming. people are coming across the border, they're so granular, people are coming across the border and they're placing them in precincts that they can flip in our next election. And, those, and so you're starting to see these immigrants showing up in just really strange places. Why would they come to this county in this precinct and there's nothing there, there's not even a job, but they're coming there and they're, that's what they're, they're that granular. So as soon as Americans understand that, then they'll say, oh, okay, I understand their MO. So my whole quest is to try to illuminate the MO. What is the modus operandi of the Chinese Communist Party? It's different from the jihadists. They blow things up. You know, the Russians, we understand how they operate. But how do the Chinese operate? How, do the, how does the CCP operate? Well, you have to look around the world. You have to read and see what they're doing in other countries. The good thing about it is that they usually fail. And they just ask the Australians, 
they come in, they're so blatantly evil and controlling and one-sided in their deal-making that all you just have to do is say no. Just recognize that and say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but when you can't see what they're doing and how they're doing it, then they can, they can infiltrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I would say to um, even Governor DeSantis right now. I would say, go meet with the PM of India, of Australia, and the Philippines. You want to know how to manage China? Talk to them. Mm-hmm. They know, and they know exactly how to do it. You can manage China, but if you're still in this world of, I don't know how they operate, and the point is, is they just they just want to do what they're they've done in China here with the surveillance. So yes, you do you do have to throw out your coffee maker with the Chinese. Yes, you do. You, there, there's going to become a list of things that the average American can do very quickly just on a technological mm-hmm. basis. And it should have been out there already. But um, I know groups are compiling that. And then on the Made in America side, you're starting to see more groups come together with new products that they can um, they can offer. Uh, so it's it's all happening behind the scenes. It certainly can't happen fast enough. That's right. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> Not nearly fast enough. And, and Rick Scott, you know, Senator Scott, put there's some really good legislation just yesterday. Uh, so he's definitely, I do think that Governor DeSantis should hold a special session of the legislature, and he should lead on this just across the board, just anything to do with the Chinese Communist Party, and he should put a civil defense plan in place. We we have to really under. I mean, you've got a lot of coastline there. Mm-hmm. I, I It's going to happen. You're going to see Chinese warships off your coast. It's going to happen. They have said they are going to start roaming all seas on the planet. That is something they've said they're going to do. Uh, and and Americans are going to be a little shocked at that. But um, I do think that some state has to stand up and do an entire top-to-bottom civil defense plan. And that means food security, what happens if the grid goes down. One of the things that CCP loves is they love to pile on. They love to pile on a natural disaster event, create more chaos, exact more mayhem, and more uh, lack of productivity and just see if, if they can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, keep keep our, our product, production levels down. Uh, so if there's a solar flare, you can expect them to maybe EMP part of the country and just blame it on that. Same thing with hurricanes. You have to be aware that there's this entity, this group of people, they're going to be finding ways to create that kind of mayhem. Wow. Well, I and tell you what, already we're... with fentanyl and hundred, hundreds of other things. So, That's what they're and then doing. These, anom- these anomalies that happen in the state on a day-to-day basis, they have to start being rolled up somewhere so they can be identified. This is really strange. You've got something weird happening in in Ocala, uh, in, 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 you know, in in the livestock community, in the, in mm-hmm. the horse community. Well, what, where did that come from? What is that? If if it happened, but this is the, this is the kind of thing they do. They just want to destabilize our society in any possible way they can. Hmm. Paul, we're out of time for the program today. Give us your website. It's decouplechina.org. Decouplechina.org. Paul Boardman, thank you so much for being with me. We'll have to have you back on for an entire program soon. Okay, my friend? All right. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it so much. Have a great day. All right. And friends, we'll see you next time right here on The Shepherd. 